Welcome to the Living In Podcast, a show that helps successful real estate teams accelerate their growth and impact. Livian, love how you live in all aspects of life. It's really interesting when you re- when you think about how running a big real estate business like ours um, requires such a different level of scrutiny to the dollar than what um, what the consumer actually thinks. Oh yeah. Right. Cause what they see is this two and a half, you know, 3% uh, commission and they see the one agent that they have access to, but they mm-hmm. don't see any of that infrastructure behind the scenes and the 80 or a hundred thousand dollars in overhead that you have to carry month over month in order to provide that level of value, that level of service. And they don't, they don't see that. Yeah. Um, and I get it. Why would they? It's just like when I go buy a car, Right. Mm-hmm. What am I really interested in? I'm interested in the four wheels, the steering wheel, the paint color, the leather seats, the GPS. Right. I, I only want to know the parts of the car that I get for the amount of money that I spend. Yeah. I'm actually I don't care how much it costs the dealer to have the fancy showroom or the no. free coffee or the leather seats that I sit in or the tables to sit at or the girl yeah. that greets me. I don't care how much that costs. I only want to pay for the car. I don't yeah. want to pay for all this other stuff. That's that's your problem. But the dealer is like. Yeah, but you wouldn't come here to buy my <laughs> car right. if I just had it in a parking lot yeah. behind the high school, right? But it's interesting too, though, on the dealer side of things. If you think about it, like when you have repairs done, I know when I had a when I had a Cadillac, they always had like a, a loaner vehicle. So if you yeah. were getting service done, you didn't have to sit at the dealership all day and have your oil changed and four tires. Like they actually gave you a vehicle to drive, but. They don't do that at Bob's Discount Auto Lot. No, they're not driving off with yeah. a replacement vehicle. Well, so. you know that's like the, this funny kind of big question that I think any business owner has to decide: is Are you Marshalls or are you Nordstrom? Right? Yeah. Are you Are you Costco, or are you um, an independent wholesaler of pistachio nuts? Right? Like, what What <laughs> are you? Like, what do you do? Like, how do you How do you make money? And and inside that whole broad spectrum of how you transact with your end user, your consumer, there's all these different things that you think are important, and yet all these people are in business. Yeah. The guy that picks the pistachios and puts them in the bag and seals the bag and then sells them to Costco is in business selling nothing but pistachios. And then Costco's in business by buying them in bulk and selling them to a consumer at a, at a decent price, but you have to buy 14 pounds of them, yeah. right? Um, Dude, I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking to somebody on the on the team about it as well. But like, when you think about profit margin, like every when you talk about it, you have to spend money, um, and that the consumer doesn't think about, or even anyone in your business doesn't think about. But like, when you the I think the fallacy that people make with finances in our industry is thinking that if when I spend a thousand dollars, I just have to sell an additional one thousand dollars to offset that expense which is not remotely how not even business math works, right? right. Not if even you close. run, like I just right. use the example is the easiest. If you run a 10% profit margin, you have to sell 10 times, or in that case, $10,000 right. to pay for the $1,000 That expense. you already spent. That's, That's right. right, yeah. People don't understand how money works, right? <laughs> that like, okay, so I made $30,000 in profit, and what yeah. I'm gonna do is reinvest that profit, that 30,000, into something and somebody goes, oh, cool. All you have to do is make 30,000 back. And it's a win. If you make 31, you do that all day. You go, no, you don't no. do that all day. No. You do that once and then you're out of business That's because right. because to make the 30 back into another 30, 
I actually have to go and increase the overhead because yeah. I have to do all the things mm -hmm. that it took in order to get the 30. I remember that lesson coming um, actually from Gary Keller where he said, you know, don't spend a dollar to make a dollar, just keep the first dollar. <laughs> right? Don't yeah. spend a dollar to make a dollar, just keep the first one yeah. and just, just have it, right? So, uh, but people really don't understand that, that, that the mechanics behind how you turn a profit um, from investment dollars. Well, it's interesting though, because I think it's a symptom of this world that we live in where we value and believe that growth is is actually the the name of the game to like get ahead in business mm -hmm. is that um, growth is I always say that, like growth is is the only the only thing that grows without a, without a purpose or for growth's sake is cancer. Mm. A business should grow with an intention of growing profitably or growing to take market share or growing to yeah. to to have some purpose. You don't, you don't just grow just to grow and think that somehow it makes you more profitable. Or that somehow that's actually the definition of success. Correct. Right? Like Correct. we've somehow gotten, we've gotten way out of alignment with, with that overarching message of do it for this purpose, for yeah. the reason. Like, and which, which really at the end of the day, like business has kind of corrupted um, the, the, the TikTok business model, right? Mm -hmm. I used to say that HGTV ruined the real estate business because it told people that you could flip a house in an hour. Yeah. Right. They watched it. And from, from, you know, from three o'clock to three fifty nine, they saw somebody make a hundred thousand. They go, that's easy. Well, man, if, if that did that TikTok and Instagram reels have told, have taught us that you can, you can make a billion dollars in five easy steps, right? Yeah. Like the five fastest ways to become a Bitcoin millionaire. Uh, and nobody ever says the five fastest ways yeah. to lose your, to lose everything, uh, investing in, in crypto. So we, we have corrupted the way people think and, and sh we're trying to create a shortcut to the end game. And people think the only way to do this is through growth. When at the yeah. end of the day, it's really to solve a problem. Yeah. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? If you wanna be in business, you gotta start with, this is the problem that exists that I'm gonna solve. And I'm either gonna solve it the same way somebody else has done it, uh, that's called franchising. Right? Yeah. I'm gonna go open a gas station on this particular corner in a town because people will need gas here and there's enough people that drive by Sounds that right. I have yep. a probable business that's gonna work and I'm just gonna open a gas station. Um, and there's lots of business models that exist like that where you don't have to innovate or create anything. Just go do it somewhere. And then there's the problem that you're trying to solve, which is I'm gonna do something that already exists, but I'm gonna do it better. Or different. Or different, or, yeah. Or I'm gonna do something that's never been done before yeah. to solve a consumer need. I mean, Uber really didn't <clears throat> innovate anything not they theory. just took a concept that already yeah. existed, which was you could get in someone else's car and go from A to B. Yeah. They just they just took that concept of like you could get in someone else's car and go from A to B and said, what if that person wasn't actually an employee, they're an independent contractor? What if that person uh, had a really awesome car that you could ride in and they, they actually cared what your experience was? Which is fascinating because I just keep going back to the same business principle that, that convenience is actually a business model. No question. Yes. Because Uber did nothing more than take what was, to your point, transportation from A to B. And they said, okay, well, that's great. We'll take it and we'll make it more convenient mm -hmm. by giving the consumer the on-demand ability to know when someone's going to pick them up, regardless of what they look like or whether they have to stand in the rain or in the snow or yeah. whether it's sunny yeah. and you're sweating in a suit. We'll, we'll tell you exactly when your driver's going to show up who it is, what kind of vehicle they're driving, and when you can expect them, rather than standing in the snow for and, 15 minutes. And even even further, they said, and oh, by the way, if you're a bus person, 
You yeah. don't even want to take a taxi. We, you could split the car with somebody else. Too. <laughs> That's true, too. You could do Uber pool, right? Yeah. It's just convenience. Like, oh, if, if price matters to yeah. you, we can actually make the cost even lower. We can make it more convenient and cheaper <clears throat> if you're willing to ride with a stranger. It is interesting. Um, it makes me think of all kinds of different things. Like, I, I just keep going back to this model that, like, I think that with technology, um, now again, remember I'm a, I'm a crypto degenerate. So like, I, I believe in this, like this, this mythical concept of blockchain in the future. Right. And, and so there's the portion of that lens that I see this world through, but I think that with AI and with technology, the, the world becomes more democratized mm -hmm. and less corporatized. We, we see like kind of almost two, two camps where you see massive consolidation or massive democratization. Uh, dude, I, I could not agree more. Like I, I actually, I said this earlier our human brains are actually what we've learned let's say in the last five decades is that our our human brains are so easily corruptible and predictable <laughs> yeah. that like our behavior patterns are so predictable we learn that through social media yeah. through algorithms that produce content that we are highly likely to engage with like the advertising industry that came out of the 1920s that's moved in the direction that it's in it's basically predicting oh, this is Eric Forney, this is the kind yeah. of stuff that Eric likes, we're gonna give him more of that, less of this, and let's just keep piling it on. Now you've got the ability to innovate that at a mm -hmm. rate that the human mind can no longer even yeah. comprehend. Yep. So we will consume, uh, and to your point, it's gonna be democratized, it, it'll, it'll be merit-based, right? The things that will get consumed, the businesses that will succeed, will be the ones that serve the way our brains think, yeah. the fastest and with the highest efficiency, which, by the way, is not great news for all of us humans that are out there trying to do it the old fashioned way. Yeah, well, I was just th even thinking about the idea that now, you know, like within the last two weeks or something, Grimes, who did, didn't even know other than the being like baby mama for Elon Musk or one of the multiple <laughs> Elon Musk children, um, basically just came out right and said, here, here's the AI um, you know, voice track and you can, you can basically create songs with my voice and we'll split royalties 50, 50. And what a, what a genius model. Cause Brilliant. people were going to do it anyway. Brilliant. And her right. point was, you know, that she would have shared royalties with, with somebody if she collaborated on a song mm -hmm. anyway. And, and so now you think about it, it's like, well, she doesn't need a record label. She doesn't need some. She doesn't need someone to go push her CD on the street corner or all of the things. So what happens to the music industry? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, what's really you bring up a really, really fascinating point, which I, I just take it even further out, which is that so much of business exists in the transfer of in, in the in the uh, transfer of either the information or the service or the yeah. product. There's a lot of middlemen, mm -hmm. right? And take the real estate industry, for example, and the pressure that's existing on the brokerage where yeah. the brokerage just is no longer the relevant player mm -hmm. in the consumer experience. They just don't have relevance anymore. That local, it doesn't matter. The yeah. teams and the agents have surpassed their <clears throat> value. So now the broker is sitting in the middle kind of flapping out there wondering what their role is. Probably in the next 15 years, much, much less. So in the same thing, take yeah. Ticketmaster, for example. Right? Yeah. Pearl Jam in 1994 sued Ticketmaster because they believed that their surcharges were too high. Right? They wanted a ticket price for a Pearl Jam concert was $17. They wanted a, a potential uh, concert goer to be able to get a ticket for under 20 bucks. Right? So they had this sort of altruistic vision of what it should be like to go and experience a Pearl Jam concert. But Ticketmaster had 
a lockdown on all the facilities. They were they owned all of the places where you could go and see Pearl Jam. They, Pearl Jam had nowhere to go. They, yeah. The distribution was they had to eventually succumb, and they had to allow Ticketmaster to charge these surcharges. So they gave in and had to do that. Now Ticketmaster has sixty has exclusive rights on sixty five percent of all of the venues out there. But what happens when the venues can start selling the tickets directly? Yeah. Like, do they even need the distribution network that is Ticketmaster? I wouldn't think so. Probably not, yeah. right? There's there's another industry. So anybody that's in the middle of the transaction between the consumer and the actual provider starts to become less and less relevant mm -hmm. because the value that those people in the middle used to, used to provide was, oh, I have something exclusive that yeah. you want that you can't get because I did all the work. I'm not devaluing. Yeah. I did all the work of setting it up and establishing it and creating the relationship. And because I did all that front end work, you're going to pay me a service charge to use this thing. Yep. Is that even, you know, I mean, you've got the Amazons <clears throat> of the world that have, again, consolidated everything yeah. under one umbrella. I think we start to see a lot more of that. Well, it's just, it's this like cartel concept that exists for the most part in, in a lot of different sectors, right? Where it's like you, you almost create, uh, you create a barrier or a mode around knowledge and information. Right. And now, you know, the, the internet has, has distributed knowledge and information, but we've seen it drastically accelerated in the last, you know, six months with, with AI and the ability to actually be smarter than people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's distributed knowledge and information, and now it's actually created a distribution network for innovation. Yeah. Right? Actually creating the next step. Mm -hmm. So the information used to exist in isolation, and then what you did with it was up to you. And it took a human to actually bring the pieces together and come up with a concept. Now you actually can pull from history of all available data ever recorded. And a computer can actually say, oh, the next 15 steps in order to create a successful business is yeah. this. I thought it was interesting. I saw this quote from Sam Altman, the um, founder of uh, OpenAI. And he was like also ran uh, Y Combinator, the the oh, yeah. you know VC startup company that would basically partner with with uh, startup businesses, and they would you know teach them, coach them, invest in their business to to be successful. Companies you've heard of like Uber and and a number of other uh, highly successful uh, venture capital companies. Um, he he quoted the other day on Twitter. He said, ChatGPT has no social features or built-in sharing. You have to sign up before you can use it, and it has no viral loop. I'm seriously questioning the years of advice that I gave to startups. It has none of the things that I told everyone else they have to include in their product, and it's the uh, number one adopted technology in the history of mankind, and it has nothing that I said that every business needs to have. So interesting. So interesting. Yeah, it's, like it's, it's, it's proof that the, uh, the filter by which everything we used to know <laughs> is no longer viable. That's really, I think yeah. that's really what that, what that gets to is that everything that, and, and we're just, you and I are sitting here having this conversation saying, we think we can see the future. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I think that a lot of people are unaware of how this will influence the way that they operate, the way that they live their life. That like at some point to your initial, your initial comment, convenience will absolutely mm -hmm. take over. Yeah. The way people operate. And we've seen that. Like I have an Alexa in almost every room in my house <laughs> and I've given up all of, you know, and I'm just Your like, privacy, yeah. yeah, I'm just accepting that like, yeah, it's listening mm -hmm. to everything. It's probably yeah. recording. There's probably cameras in there, even though they say, I don't know what's in there, but I've just accepted it because it's just so convenient to say, Alexa, 
play me some Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's so convenient, and I just really appreciate it. It got me thinking about when kind of in reading his quote was the idea of like, what is all of the other bullshit, bad advice that gets given in business that we just accept to be true? Um, and, you know, I was telling Tyler, I was working on this, um, this kind of this blog or mini piece the other day called like, buy my leadership and all the other bullshit that I try to sell you on leadership advice and leadership theory, you know, because in our industry, we hear. Um, you know, what is the most quotable gets the most repeated, whether it's true or not. And, and so it got me thinking about like all the bad business advice or all the bad leadership advice that gets given. What comes to your mind when you think about bad business and leadership advice that's, that you hear all the time, but you think is not true? You know, you, you know, the way I run my business and, and a lot of, you know, the, the, the biggest thing, and I'll just take it right from our industry, um, when I started in this business in 2006 with a real estate license, but really 2003 I started in real estate, um, it was all about image. Like everything that, that, that was given to me or fed to me was, was that you have to look the part, you have to play the part, you have to be a certain way. And I think in the last two decades, we've seen that completely shattered. And we've seen, and, and we've seen that shattered with, you know, business leaders like Elon Musk and business yeah. leaders like Mark Zuckerberg and business leaders that look nothing like the prototype of a mm -hmm. business leader in 1990 with the three-piece suit, right? And the corner office and like all of that just kind of got shattered. It's gone. And I rejected that when it was the advice that I was given where I was literally sat down and said, you know, hey, you should dress better. You should drive a nicer car. Uh, you know, people buy how you look. I always believe bullshit. People buy how you make them feel, yeah, right? And that, that how you make people feel, by the way, I've been in lots of meetings where people showed up in three-piece suits and made me feel uncomfortable, <laughs> right? It's yeah. the truth, right? And, and they weren't lawyers and I wasn't on, a, on trial. Uh, but, <laughs> the, the, but I've been in situations where that was just not appropriate. And I always thought our industry, you know, created all that. Like we are the industry that launched Glamour Shots, right? We launched a company, a whole industry, a whole sidebar yeah. industry showed up as a result of real estate agents, like, and they had, you know, storefronts and malls. Um, I think that, that that was it, that like thinking that the product doesn't actually matter, that mm. like you could just trick people into working with you based on your appearance. By the way, I think that you're seeing just an enormous amount of that now where everybody's got a platform and everybody's got a podium because anybody can be a social media influencer or superstar. Yeah. And they don't actually have to provide anything of value, right? Um, I, I went because, you know, I'm attempting to, to jump into that arena. And I went and I started following all these people because I thought that yeah. must be what you do. And within, <clears throat> I don't know, 30 minutes, I had seven or eight people reach out to me, like with some Bitcoin billionaire model that they <laughs> want. And I, and I started messing with all these chat bots, yeah. like to see, to test how good their their bots were, how good their... Because I knew that wasn't a real person, yeah. you know? Um, it was fascinating to me. I'd start asking them questions like, you know, what color shirt am I wearing in my photo? Uh, and it's like, you too could be a Bitcoin billionaire. <laughs> and I'm like, you are a robot. Like, yeah. you, but most people wouldn't know to do that, so... I, I just got... I'm just kind of thinking about, like, what is the... What is the these just ideas of, like, bad advice that we get all the time? And, and what comes to my mind for some reason is, like, this um, 
this overemphasis on, um, or I guess maybe, let me rephrase that. It's an underemphasis on um, the complexity of life mm. and um, a, a lack of willingness or desire to, uh, to give luck the credit that it's due. Oh, totally. it, it, is, it is absolutely 100% possible to do the right thing at the wrong time and go bankrupt and be incredibly um, MySpace, yeah, Friendster, Google Glass. Yep. There, there are there are a billion different things that we could come up with that were all the the right things at the wrong time, mm-hmm. um, when either the marketplace isn't ready or the you know the technology is just not quite where it needs to be. You know, when you look at when you look at Facebook versus MySpace, it's an interesting example. Facebook was something like. You know, somewhere between like 50 and 100, um, uh, like of the social media um, websites that was developed, it was not the first. It didn't. It didn't come out onto the market and build this this mode around the network effect. It was actually developed significantly later than a number of other platforms, and and so then you're like, well, why did it take off? There's to some degree there has to be a portion of timing of timing luck, and luck. the right part. The right people, the right yeah. relationship, no question. What role has luck played in your success? In my success. Or if you think about one or two, maybe three things that had they have gone differently, they may, or, or if you didn't have one or two, yeah. three people that may have I definitely, been I definitely am a subscriber to the, the, the concept. I don't know who said it, but you hear it all the time. It's a little bit cliche that you kind of make your own luck by showing up. Yeah. And I believe that, that, I, that there have been a lot of really lucky breaks that I've had but I've had them because I was putting myself in the line of fire very consistently and taking a lot of hits. So I definitely don't feel like when I look at my success trajectory, I don't look back and go like, oh man, that was, that was like winning the lottery. Like everything has come at a cost and I happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right people enough that enough of the right things started to show up. Most of it to me, if I look at, call it 20 years in business, most of it was around the right leaders in my life who said the right thing to me when I needed to hear it or somehow distilled the message appropriately. But that that required me to get on planes, which is advice that I give to okay. anybody that wants to start is you have to get on planes, you have to get in cars, you have to go places and go hang out with people. Um, and I think that that makes your luck, like that creates your, your propensity to be luckier. If you Let's just take luck in the sense of like the pure gambler yeah. mentality. If you if you got to play to win, right? Isn't that the Foxwoods uh, saying, or maybe it's Vegas or something? But you got to <laughs> play to win. If you don't go to the casino and put some money down on black or red, you will not win that bet. So you have to keep playing. You got to keep showing up and playing, yeah. and then you will create some luck. On the on the topic though of of um, bad business advice. And in alignment with that, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the things that I think we've gotten confused about over the last couple of years is this idea that you can postpone profit because some huge businesses have succeeded as a result of that. And they've become this like model for how to go become, how to build a billion dollar business. But there's this gap between those billion dollar businesses and all the rest of us that we, we don't put enough emphasis on profit as early as possible. Yeah. And I know that I was a victim of it. I'm sure a lot of other people that you know were a victim of it where it's like, well, no, I, I'll get profitable once I grow. Yeah. Once I get to this level, I can see it. I know I'll get profitable. But the reality is if you never slow down early, 
to figure out how to turn a profit from day one, you actually have a failed business model. You just lose more money as you get bigger. Well, and, and it's the illusion again of thinking that growth is good and yet growth is only good for the ability for it to do good things from a business standpoint. I, I think it's like if, if you could have $10 million today yeah. or a hundred million dollars in 70 years, which one do you want? <laughs> the $10 million. I want today, $10 million right? today because yeah. I'm not making it 70 more years. That's right. Right. So like, like what is the life and what is the, back to purpose? Like what yeah. is the purpose of your business? Ultimately, all businesses must must have profit and product as part of their solution set. They must make money and they must solve a problem that with some version of a product, service, deliverable, yeah. um, you know, something that's manufactured, something. So I'm curious, when I think about this idea of, of good luck or bad luck or good timing, right timing, good idea, bad idea, it, it becomes almost this like matrix of of trying to, to figure out the success secret. Um, when you think about the time that you were buying and flipping houses, yeah. there was a time that you made money and then there was a time you lost your ass. Mm -hmm. Was it luck on both sides? Of, was it timing, basically, which is you bought it the right, I mean, right, yeah, right idea, like wrong a, time? So my favorite piece of advice to give to like amateur investors <laughs> is that the number one thing that's gonna to contribute to your success as a house flipper is the market. Yeah. And you have no control over the market. So if you buy a property in an appreciating market where the market's increasing by 6% per month, mm -hmm. right? The probability of losing money is pretty slim. Yeah, you, you have to really you, you screw have up. to be yeah. really bad at it. You have to have it, right? bad, really but, bad. But the, yep. mar the market can turn and suck 20% of value that's out right. in a month. So if the market sucks 20% of value out and you based your entire metric your whole model on making a 20% margin, yeah. you're out, you're done. Now you're 100% losing money and no kitchen counter, no tile, yeah. no special faucet is gonna change that. The That's market right. the market erased your profit. So um, luck inside of that model, is a, that's a great example of one that says, market timing has the biggest influence on whether or not you win in that market. And that's where, that speaks all, the, any flipper that's out there that's saying, yeah. no, 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 Matt, that's not true because I buy so well. You just right. need to buy so well that you can insulate yourself from any market correction, yep. which most people, it's really, really tough to do that. That's why really good house flippers are not in this market right now. <laughs> That's right. They're not. Like the, yeah. really, the ones that really know what they're doing, like if you're out there listening and you're like, ah, Matt's crazy. I've been flipping for the last five yeah. years and I'm doing fine. Okay, hang mm -hmm. on because it's coming. The ones that are really advanced, the real, they're just waiting. Yeah, They're sitting and they're hoarding cash and they're waiting and they're investing in other things. Well, I mean, we see that at scale and it's going to lead me into kind of this next idea, but we see at scale, um, a lot of things are easy to do over the course of a few different iterations. As in, if I flip four houses a year, I get to kind of pick and choose the four right. that, I, that, that fit my little box of numbers. Yeah. But if I'm trying to do 400 a year, yeah. now the difficulty um, goes up exponentially. We see that with Open Door, right? Here's a company that has, that has more data than arguably anyone else in the industry on, on you know, the algorithmic probability of buying and, and selling at a profit and you know, loses almost a billion dollars in a quarter right. uh, through either direct losses or through markdowns. And, and so we see that it becomes increasingly more difficult to uh, become profitable as you increase the law of big numbers. When we think about the law of big numbers, 
the question that we keep hearing over and over from CEOs and from leaders right now as the market becomes difficult is the question is, how do I get people to show up? How do I get them to engage? How do I get them to take the actions that they need to take? What, what's the answer to that? I, it depends on who you're talking about. So if we're talking about traditional salespeople, right, the number one thing is your comp model has to reflect the activity that you expect them to perform, right? So salespeople need to have a very clear line between if I do this, I get that. Really good salespeople yeah. have clarity about that. It's not complicated, and I always say they cannot, your comp model should not need a calculator. They should be able to say, I sell this, I get that, right? If they need a calculator or they need some, if they need to ask corporate for the formula, um, then you messed it up. It's yeah. too complicated to motivate a salesperson. So if you want your salespeople to show up, you have to be able to show them the carrot, show them exactly where they need to go, and then provide a runway for them to do it and take all the hurdles out of the way. So when you get to, okay, first I have a really clear comp model, now okay. I need them to perform. Performance requires constant stimulation, right? Like mm. the thing is, is that when my wrestling coach told me, um, if he ever said that, that practice was, uh, was optional, um, I'm pretty sure that half the wrestling team wouldn't have shown up because practices sucked. They were, okay. they were way worse than that. In a yeah. match, you wrestled for three, you know, yeah, for, that's true. You know, a couple, yeah. couple minutes and you were exhausted and you put it all out there, but like it didn't suck practice sucked like practice was hours and hours right football was the same way double sessions triple sessions. that stuff was awful the games were fun right so so if you gave again human nature if you if you allowed humans to decide when they were going to show up they're never going to show up for the hard stuff that's just not the way we're wired they're going to most of them show up for the easy part and they're not going to be do, doing well because they haven't shown up and done the practice so um you know the 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 theme i think there is that You've got to make it clear for the salesperson what they need to do, how they get compensated for it, and then you got to hold them to it. And the way you the way you keep doing it is you keep introducing new concepts. Okay. Like you have to have you you as a CEO become an everyday content creator. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of us get stuck in that. We get like, what do I do? I'm not sure what to do. And you and I have talked about this before, but the the best thing to do is just take it from somebody else. Oh yeah. Read a read a book. Share your share your thoughts from a paragraph from a chapter in a book. Watch a movie. Yeah, uh, that's got some leadership lessons in it. Share some leadership. <laughs> Sounds like you did that on a plane. I, or something I did yesterday. that on a plane. Yeah, I actually just watched Remember the Titans, and I pulled some really strong, powerful leadership lessons out of that. Unify around a mission. Yeah. Unify your people. Make sure that your people are collaborating together. Make sure that they're committed to one another's success. Um, and th those are things that you can you can. If you have a filter, if you're watching Remember the Titans, which is one of the greatest sports movies ever, if you're watching that movie and you're just simply trying to watch a movie to be entertained, you're probably not going to see the leadership lessons that come out of it. Yeah. But if you watch that movie and say, what could I glean from this? That creates... Is that a, a habit? Like, is content creation a habit? Or is it just like this muscle that you develop? Like, do you, do you eventually just see it everywhere as you have to... As you really do it? great... I think, yeah, you know, I think it's a really great question. I... I certainly have started, once, once I decided or realized that my life was going to be in some form of leadership, I started to look at everything through the lens of what are the leadership lessons that I can pull from this. Yeah. I remember the first experience around that was um, I, uh, 
was watching this HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers. Okay. And it was about the Easy Company in World War II, um, you know, the 82nd Airborne, 101st, 80, one, of the, one of those, 82nd or 101st Airborne Division, Easy Company, and the, the story of their entire progress through, uh, you know, the invasion of Normandy, dropping behind enemy, enemy lines, like the evolution of it, and watching it through the lens of the leader this guy, uh, Richard Winters, who by the time he was out of the, by the time the war was over, he was a colonel, uh, started as a, you know, uh, a lieutenant, and watching how he behaved. He wrote this amazing book. I've since read his book. And learning, like, how you show up as a leader in a military situation and how that then relates to you just running a company. Um, so is it a habit? I don't know. I, I think now I can't watch anything without looking for the leaders. <laughs> I, I just remember when I um, was was getting into leadership as well. Is that you, you do you have to you have to teach something, you have to run a meeting, you've got to do something that is content related all the time, right? I go back to this this idea that most leadership books are bullshit, yeah, um, and that most of them are leadership theory. There's a couple of them that are actually you know done by by real leaders teaching leadership principles that are somewhat time tested, and one of them is. Um, two books by Andy Grove, who is the uh, Intel CEO, and and one of the things he says is that the most dollar productive thing you can do as a leader is train your people. Yeah. And not necessarily train them individually, but if you can train them in bulk, you can increase the, your dollar per hour as a leader. If you think about what Gary Keller does, yep. that's what Gary has done with us since... Uh, since, since we earned the right to be in the same room to be trained by yeah, Gary, right? right. Yeah, and right. so he multiplies his time through multiplying the, the thinking through the rest of us as a group. And, um, and so I think it's kind of an interesting thing. I remember starting that path of leadership and training and, and asking a buddy of mine, I'm like, how do, how do pastors do this every week? Mm. Because if you think about it as a pastor, you have to re-enroll someone on a vision Every single Sunday or multiple yeah. times a week, yeah. you're in content creation and you're teaching the same book. It's not like they're coming out with new Bibles yeah, every, right. every, every season. Right. Version 2.0, right. right? Yeah. Like, and everyone else who you, quote, compete with happens to also have the exact same book that they have mm -hmm. to teach from. So why does Joel Osteen have uh, uh, an entire stadium full of people? Yeah. And, and maybe Joe Osteen in Dubuque, Iowa, has four people at yeah. the church. Yeah. There has to be some difference between the two of them. Yeah. And, and so really trying to understand from a leadership standpoint is how do you find content everywhere? Yeah, fine. and, and I, I love the question, is, is content creation a habit? Uh, it certainly is when you have to show up every day and deliver something. Yeah. Right. So when you have a morning liftoff, and this goes to, to the core <laughs> of your question, which is how do you get people enrolled? Um, you know, on our team, we have a morning liftoff every morning. And every single morning, I have to show up and deliver something of value or someone on my team has to. Yeah. Right. And, and that value some days is very low, meaning it's as simple as, hey, we're here. We're all here. We're going to do some script practice or we're going to have a conversation around something that's happening in the market. And other days, that value is really high. Yeah. where there's some message that's like really, really important to deliver. That morning muster um, sets the tone for, as the leader, for your need to create some content. Because if I always kept it at low level, mm -hmm. people would start, stop tuning in. Oh yeah. People just stop tuning in. And that's, so I, I think content creation probably is a habit that you need to get into if you're in some form of leadership. Did, was it, have you always maintained that habit or did it take a while to transition from being like, 
agent who was in production running, going on appointments all the time to holding the time block, creating content and delivering yeah, something. Yeah, I think I think I'm actually a, a great like I don't I don't enjoy it much at all. Like it's actually not a part of me. Like I don't seek out opportunities for an yeah. audience to share stuff. That's not part of my program. It's part of a necessary part of mm-hmm. running an organization that they need to hear from the leader and they need they need to hear messages of value. So that's that's to me is a it's a sim- similar to like working out. Like I yeah. it's it's necessary. I don't choose to do that because I'm inherently I need yeah. to like there are some some people that just love that. They love the the attention. They love I I don't that's not a normal part. That's a that's a learned behavior for me. Yeah. Uh so, you know, I definitely recognize the the value and importance. If I could, I think that if if someone else would do it and do it better than me, I yeah. would be happy to give it up. Mm-hmm. Happy to. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I, obviously we coach CEOs and have conversations with with real estate CEOs all the time. And I remember how long it took me to transition from high producing real estate agent to uh, to leader. Yeah, and it was a lot longer of a transition than I would love to admit. I agree. I think it probably took two years yeah. before I consistently held every meeting that I scheduled. Yeah. Not that I hold every single meeting. doesn't mean I don't cancel some of them now, but like I would blow one off for a listing appointment. I mean, totally. we might have a team meeting and I'd be like, yeah, but yeah, there, I got a listing to go on. Totally. Um, so yeah. you guys will be fine without me for this meeting, right? Yeah. That is so, <clears throat> that's such a great point that that, that first step for many, and I love that you brought that up because I think most leaders go through that same experience. I own my time. I'm in charge of me. Other yeah. people want to be around me. Sure, you come. Here's my lesson. Do what I do. Yeah. And then what do we do is we don't show up for all the most important things that we set for them. Yep. We just keep showing up only for ourselves. Yeah. And then we teach them that. And then we wonder why we have a shitty culture or why we can't get everybody moving in the same direction because we're not setting the example. So that first commitment, and I remember when I went through it too, and I just said, okay, no more blowing off commitments. Yeah. Did you make that decision team. yourself? Uh, well, or did somebody come to you? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. do we ever make any decisions? Like, yeah. No, somebody gave me the feedback that yeah. I needed okay, at me the too. time and yeah. said like, look, you're not showing up the way I need you to. And I would, at first, like, what's our reaction? At first, you're like, well, it's a, waste of, it's a yep. waste of time. Yeah. I show up and I tell you guys what to do and you don't do and it. You don't go do Why it. am I yeah. even bothering showing up, right? And then, and then you realize like, oh, but you're not doing it because I'm not doing it either. Yeah. And so you actually, at some point, you just hold the line mm-hmm. and you just do it. You just do it and do it and do it no matter who shows up. Hardest lesson for emerging leaders to learn. Number one, and, I, and I, I, as I've tried to empower other people on our team, to take leadership, the number one thing that they come to me with as a complaint or as a um, as as feedback or as as a challenge that they're having, or it, they always come back and say people aren't showing up. Yeah, they don't show up the for me the way they do for you. <laughs> yep, uh, they're not showing up, and I always say to them, they didn't for me in the beginning either. <laughs> I just had to keep showing up. So if you take that as permission, mm-hmm. as the leader, to start taking your foot up oh, they don't show up the way I need to, so I'm going to show up half also. You are literally degrading the overall value. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the lessons I got around this was, I remember a mentor in my life telling me, for every minute that you're late to a meeting, there is an exponential permission granted for other people to be late. 
Interesting. So if you are five minutes late, you're not only giving people, you're giving people as the leader, you're giving people permission to be an exponential version of late. That might be 15 minutes. But you've told them that the leader can be late, therefore everyone could be late. Yeah. You've told them that if you, if, if you can blow it off, they can blow it off. And that if you blow it off once a month, they'll blow it off four times a month. They will always take your lead if you put yourself out there as the leader and you present yourself as that kind of, if the thing is not a priority for you, it will not be a priority for them. I love that. Uh, ben Horowitz, who also happened to write a really good uh, or two good leadership books. Um, one of the people who've led companies and wrote great leadership books. Um, he has a principal in his company and they kind of subscribe to this, which I love, which is this idea of having shocking rules. Mm. And, um, and we can unpack that. And I'm guessing that you have some of them as well. But having the shocking rules in your culture and one of their shocking rules is that it's a it's a thousand dollar fine for 10 minutes late oh, to, to awesome. meetings. And the reason why that that shocking rule exists is because they're a venture capital fund, right? And so they invest in entrepreneurs. And his point is that if you don't show up to value the time of the entrepreneur, then you should pay the price for not valuing the time of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, um, and so the concept of shocking rules is that it should be so, uh, uh, so shocking that you have to explain it to everyone who's new to your company mm -hmm. because it stands out and differentiates itself. It's unique. Yeah. And, and so it's one of those, it's like, how do you come up with these really uh, unique rules that differentiate your culture? I love it. I've got one that I can share. And we do it in a way. So part of the, part of the <clears throat> shocking rules is you've also got to, you have to get buy-in from people that when they come in, they understand what they're agreeing to. That's right. Right. So there's this first step is if you have shocking rules in your company. Yeah. You get everybody to agree to them. So we have the worst call of the week. And the worst call of the week worst is because call of the week. all of okay. our inbound internet leads are recorded. Yeah. And the worst call of the week always goes to the person that doesn't follow the system. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and so what's our system? For us, inbound leads are, there's only one way to successfully convert an inbound yeah. lead, and that's to a consultation. Yep. Right? If you agree to meet somebody at 123 Main Street, that's a big F. That's a fail. That's okay. actually not your job. Okay. When an inbound lead shows up, your job is to provide value to that person and create an opportunity to build a relationship. Um, now, the shortcut that most real estate agents want is they just want to say, yes, I'll meet you at the property because they yeah. think it, it's completely false. They think that they're going to sell somebody a house that they just met 30 seconds ago, which is never, ever going to happen. It doesn't happen yeah. ever. So we will play the worst call of the week on the call with our entire team. And so when you, when you do that, it's shocking because it's super embarrassing for the person okay, that's what I was who's, being, ask, yeah. who's being called out. And they, they accepted that that was the premise. When they picked up the phone, they know okay. that if they botch it, if they screw it up, if they sound terrible, there's a high, I now get texts from people like, I think I just won worst call of the week. <laughs> like, cause they know they screwed it up. They were not, they shouldn't have answered it, whatever. And we just have fun with it, but it's, for, for people on the outside yeah. who would be a part of our, they would think that is shocking. Like, what yeah. do you mean you play a recording? Yes, this call is being recorded for training yeah. purposes, Yeah, right? You've heard that before. Yeah, on our team, that's true. We actually use the worst call yeah. for training. And then we also, we will also play our best call. Yeah. Uh, we'll also play the ones that are really good. Yeah, it's interesting. We do the same thing with calls, um, which I still think is one of the most effective ways to actually um, learn to be a better salesperson is, to go listen or watch game tape. Yeah, no doubt. 
Right. I, I mean, most agent. I think that's one of the drawbacks of being an individual agent is, is who actually is doing any real supervision or oversight. How do you get any real time coaching or skills training if no one's ever hearing you live? No one's right. ever doing ride alongs with you. No one sees what your consultation is like. Right. There's, there have to be so many agents who are just stuck. Yeah. with the same level of production, whether it's zero or, you know, or 30 units a year. But with a little bit of minor and subtle tweaks and some oversight and coaching would be so much more effective. It's also, it's beyond, again, it speaks to how we've really screwed this industry up and we've really botched some things, yeah. right? Because, because it's such an individual sport for most agents, any, you know, request for help or whatever comes with a price tag. <laughs> and a lot of agents are just reluctant to seek out that feedback because they're afraid that it's going to cost so much money. Yeah. Some of the best relationships that I've gotten into, which ultimately have turned into team partnerships, were where, you know, I would offer to just be, you know, like consult. Like, yeah. you know, hey, let me help you with this. Um, we we have a lot to offer. I mean, really, all of this content that we create is free, right? People yeah, can watch for sure. This and, I don't get paid. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're not getting paid? No, I'm not sure. getting paid. No, okay, nobody cool. paid me for this. Uh, um, so buy my course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody paid me for this, but for ten ninety nine, ten ninety nine a month. Uh, yeah. So um, th I think that that's part of where agents get tripped up is that they're afraid to ask for help yeah. from people who are more than willing to give it. I wish more agents would ask me for help because yeah. I enjoy sharing and I like seeing other people succeed. How often do you get asked for help? Not enough, honestly. Sometimes it makes me question my own validity. I know, where I was right? like, kind of like. Huh, like I offer it all yeah. the time. There is this funny perception though, like, and I've heard, I've heard even Gary talk about this, that like sometimes nobody asks yeah. and you don't know that there's this sort of perception that like, oh, they're too busy or they have too much going on. Yeah. Not untrue, I am busy, but of course. there is a part of me that really loves serving people and helping yeah. people. So, uh, but not enough. I don't get asked for help enough. It's interesting. I don't, I couldn't tell you the last time someone reached out for help either. Yeah. And uh, and I offered it the other day when I was doing a was doing a training locally and you know I'm like the the question was something to the effect of like what advice would you give someone who's who's having a hard time breaking past, you know, 5 million in annualized volume and you know depending on what market you're in that might be could be 5 10, houses. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know it could be 5, it could be 15, but either way it's kind of in that that point where you're you're making a living but it's not the best living and uh and, you know, and I, I think my response was something to the effect of like, uh, it's easy for people to, to give you these like memorable, digestible quotes in this inspirational, motivational. The TikTok version. That's right. Yeah. And, and yet the reality is, is I would be doing you an injustice. So if that's you, I'm offering to actually sit down and do, you know, some sort of like coaching consultation, whatever, no, no charge. Let's spend time to actually figure out where your business is stuck. Yeah, I mean, the simplest. Zero people, Zero. not a single person has reached out about it. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just wild, right? Yeah. Again, like it's sometimes I'll be like, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe I don't have anything to offer. I don't know. But like I, I know that the uh, the simplest path to helping people is to just help them get a business plan. Yeah. Like most people are so stuck inside of this idea that, you know, to be successful, it's all got to come at some, you know, it's got to come at some high cost and they have to do something extraordinary. They're always looking for like, the fireworks display that's going to change their business when in fact all you actually need to do is make a plan yeah and so many people operate without a plan 
they just operate without a plan. So I'm a leader and I, and let's say that I'm struggling to get people to show up or to engage. Um, what's the first thing that I would look for um, on maybe a day-to-day -day basis or weekly, quarterly, whatever that is? What's the first sign that people are disengaged or disengaging? Uh, well, it depends on how your meetings are. Okay. But if your meetings are on any kind of digital format and the cameras are off <laughs> or people are driving, that's a pretty pretty good sign. Okay. Right? That people are no longer taking the, the content seriously. Um, you have to, and that's one of those funny things is like you have to hold the line on that. Like, like you have to be prepared to say, we have a meeting, you were expected to be here, you're driving, that's not here. Your camera's off, that's not here. You're walking around eating breakfast, that's not here. Yeah. Here is sitting down, paying attention, engaged. That you have to be willing to do that. So one of the that's it, that's in a digital format. If you're doing yeah. it in person, it's people showing up late. Yeah, it's people not communicating that they're not going to be there. Like you start to have meetings and then like you don't know where people are. Um, and so as a leader, the first job is to get your people there. Your yeah. very first job is to get attendance. So how do I get that? Uh, I, because I think that becomes one of the challenges we see, right? And mm -hmm. and you know. Candidly, like uh, having led, you know, multiple hundred agents at a time before, you get kind of these regulars that show up, and yeah. then you get those that, that don't show up. You know, what are some ways to get more buy-in and, and uh, people to show up? It depends on which, depends on what kind of organization you're running. Yeah. So, so um, if you're running an organization where you have an agreement set out that they will show up, the way you do it is you call them out immediately when they don't. Right, and you just simply say you agreed, you didn't. Yeah. Therefore, you breaking the promise. Are we still in business? Yeah. Like I, I just, I, I just need to know. Like I'm not. I don't care if you don't show. If you don't show up, it doesn't affect me. If you decide to quit, because you already aren't showing up. So <laughs> I would much rather yeah. just call it what it is. If you're quitting, quit now, please, so yeah. that I can stop wondering whether you're going to show up next time. Um, if you have the agreement. Now, let's say that you don't have the agreement. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the agreement up front and people aren't showing up, I think the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they try to go out and get the circus to show up. And they think that, oh, if I get the circus, people will show up. What do you mean? They get some monkeys and some elephants and they get some, they, they put on some, some stagecraft and they go, don't miss the mm, stagecraft. The Ringling Brothers and Eric Forney Circus <laughs> will be here. You can't miss this. This will change your life. Like they go and they get the circus, but they don't get the commitment. And they go, yeah. and then when people still don't show up, they go, man, why didn't they show up to the circus? I thought yeah. they would love the circus. You're still guessing. Um, mm. I think the, the fastest path to get engagement is to go tell people, I expect you to be there. Okay. And I want you to be there. And then if they say, or you could do either, you could go to them and say, I would really like for you to be there. Okay. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be yeah. a set expectation, but hey, I would really like it if you would attend. And it's, it's doing two things. Number one, it's opening the door for objections that you might not know about as yep. a leader as to why they're not coming. Uh, number two, it's gaining enrollment and you're building the relationship so that the expectation is set. Yeah. So if I had an organization of 50 people and I was running meetings and only 40 were showing up, the, I'm calling those other 10 and I'm just saying, I notice you don't show up. Yeah. What is it? And I'd really like for you to be there. Uh, what could we do to make that worth your while? I've done that yeah. and I've gotten the feedback. Hey, I just don't get value from that. Okay, what would it look like if you did get value? What would you need for there to be value? Well, I'd need more of this or more of that or I need more engagement. And then what they just gave you, 
was an opportunity to give them something to do. Okay, perfect. That's the next transition, right? Which so then is, I give them okay. ownership over the thing that they said they're not getting. Gotcha. So then in that case, let's let's work through this then because I think I, I wish I had learned that leadership hack earlier. Mm. Um, I, I think it was I think it's incredibly effective um, to get people to actually buy into the result, right? Which is to actually author yes the the outcome. And, right. and so I'm going to reach out to the person who says either I'm not getting value, I'm not showing up, whatever it is. Um, hey, Matt, you're incredibly valuable to this organization. And I know that when you show up, Tyler gets tons of value and Kate gets tons of value and you bring so much to this organization. Um, I'd really love for you to, to show up and, and deliver your perspective on how to sell more houses, how to whatever it is, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and then I'm going to basically ask permission to get that, to get Tyler to show up and then do some sort of training, teaching, some sort of authorship around that. You correct? enroll, you enroll them in the in the process, yeah. so that they feel like they're a part of it. You're bringing collaboration, and that's good for your culture <clears throat> too. Now, one thing that will also happen is people will say yes, they will, and then they still won't. <laughs> and then, and then, but then you have to ask yourself whether they're a cultural fit, and that's okay. Like yeah. that's the other part that, especially in our industry, people are afraid of. Uh, they're afraid to confront what is obviously not a fit. And if someone doesn't show up, that means they're not getting value from you. Yeah. If, um, if they're not getting value from you, the inevitable outcome is they're going to start looking at price. And they're yeah. going to start asking themselves, am I paying too much because I don't get value from the meetings? I don't get value from the content. I don't get value from Matt as a leader. And he never reaches out to me and asks me what I need. Yeah. So, so you just have to go at that and just call them and say, hey, you're not showing up. Um, what is it that you need or what is it that we should be providing that would help you to feel like this is something of value. Okay, so the other thing you touched on was that, that as a leader, your job is to is to basically um, mix the the formula up on a, let's say that your cadence is um, every every day you have a certain business and communication cadence. Yeah. So then if I'm if I'm a leader and it feels like the business is stalled out, how do I mix up that cadence to get people involved? Yeah, I lo- I, this was something that occurred to me a few years into the business that that one thing that salespeople need is constant movement. Right. So salespeople really, especially when you're running a sales organization, salespeople need things to change. Right. So in some organizations, that's a sales contest. Uh, It can be that Um, it can be some sort of a group, you know, group challenge where you partner people up. It can be some sort of just call cadence. Um, The thing that that salespeople need is they need constant reaffirmation and constant renewing of the goal because the goal on an annualized basis, this is why the 12-week year is so, so popular and yeah. so successful. A goal on an annualized basis feels way too, too far, far away on January 1st, yeah. and it feels way too close on October 31st, right? So you're, you're sort of never in the process of being able to do it day by day. So as a leader, you have to constantly be rebooting people's uh, attention and energy. Yeah. And you're rebooting their attention and energy not by becoming, <clears throat> even though the absolute predictable path to success is do the same thing every day over and over and over again and then you will get the outcome that is you know tried and true right. indisputable yep. no one can debate it yeah. what you actually need to do though is every 30 days 45 days you have to make it feel like it's something brand new yeah like oh the goal is this mm-hmm. but on our way to that you can win a new car <laughs> you know there's a trip to hawaii yeah. like there's some stuff built in that keeps people engaged and, and full of attention to do it in the short term. 
Um, and and that that is that's the part that like requires a little bit of effort and a little bit of reboot. I like to mix people up too around the team because culture is so important to me. Yeah. And and when I say culture, I want people to understand I'm not talking about culture kumbaya. I'm talking about a culture of production. And a culture of production requires that there's this team element of driving one another toward an, uh, an agreed upon outcome that the entire organization needs to get to. Mixing people up means you start getting cross accountability. Yep. You start building relationships inside so that one person won't let anyone fall down for too long. What's interesting, there's a recent, uh, I recently came across some like research around the idea of, of procrastination and, and one of the effective ways to beat procrastination is to, to marry intrinsic motivation with extrinsic motivation. And, and so what you said or what I heard you say was that um, every 45 days I might take the intrinsic goal or the thing that makes the agent or the salesperson show up intrinsically motivated every day. It might be helping people. It might be making more uh, money, ma making, sending the kids to the top, right. whatever. Yeah. And then I marry it with some sort of ex extrinsic uh, motivator like uh, like your joke, I get a new car. I, right. you know, go drink a beer. I, I mean, play flag football. No one does this better than Mary Kay Cosmetics. <laughs> you get a pink Cadillac. You get some free this. Yeah. You get some cos. Like every MLM company on the planet has mastered the ability to motivate 1099 independent contractors by offering external motivators to help them win some status symbol or some next level you know, diamond, you're a diamond salesperson, you're a platinum salesperson, triple black diamond. Like they just keep going to the point, you know, and, and people are motivated by that. And that's external and it doesn't actually mean anything, but that is the path. And if you're running a sales organization, you just have to be aware that th this is a behavioral thing. This isn't, this isn't about smoke and mirrors. This is like, you, I could be talking about this and you could put me in a room in an hour and offer me a sales contest and like I'm hooked like I'm in like I know what's happening I'm aware of it and I still want to win that thing yeah fine like that's cool it's like you know it's there's nothing there's nothing uh it's not a mystery you but yeah. you as the leader you have to keep offering that so when I when I kind of break this down and into recap what we've talked about it's it's I'm going to first start by measuring engagement I'm going to get awareness to what what does buy-in look like. Mm -hmm. um, if buy-in doesn't look the way that I want, then I've got to audit myself as a leader. Yep. I've got to decide, am I showing up the way that I expect others to show up? Am I holding myself to that that accountability? And then I'm going to enroll authorship yes. with the people in the organization so that they can author the solution so they own the solution. Right. And then um, I need to marry intrinsic motivation with extrinsic motivation and then create some, um, some variability to the cadence of organizational uh, communication or the organizational design. Anything else I have to do as a leader to ensure that my people are as bought in and are showing up when times are challenging? I think that you, you have to be constant. The only other piece is that you have to be constantly reaffirming why they are part of the organization. Mm -hmm. Like the overarching above all those three, those three sort of simple things, if you're finding that none of that stuff is working, it's generally because they aren't bought into what you're telling them they're going after. They don't know what mountain they're climbing. They don't know what hill they're taking. They don't know what bridge they're crossing. They don't know what direction they're going. To them, it's just about a paycheck or the next sale. And that is the stuff that actually, that, that's what will degrade an organization totally. That 
people need to be bought into the bigger picture, whatever that might be. That could just be we're going to be the number one widget sales company in the country because by doing so, we will help so many families and we give back. For everybody, it's a different thing. Lots of people will marry, you know, uh, um, you know, nonprofit or yeah. charitable charitable entities to their organization, but you have to have some bigger purpose. Otherwise, it's just a job. <laughs>